You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. On Wednesday, March 20th, the Washington Post Live and the Opinions Essay, the Washington Post's new long-form storytelling initiative, brought together General John Allen, former Undersecretary of State Wendy Sherman, former U.S. Navy Intelligence Officer Malcolm Nance, and author Robert Kagan to discuss the breakdown of global alliances, the rise of nationalism, and the ever-growing threat to democracy. Authoritarianism has re-emerged as a grave threat to freedom all over the world. How serious a danger is this and what are the causes? In this segment, General John Allen, a seasoned military veteran who has been in hot spots all over the globe, gives us a threat assessment as well as a path forward for democracies to counter this growing geopolitical force. Let's listen. So thanks uh, so much to uh, Fred Hyatt for uh, this innovation in our newspaper. If you're a, a writer and you get to, to write not 750 words, but to imagine 7,000 words, um, this, is, this is the innovation we, we like to see. Um, it's my pleasure to begin our conversation about authorita authoritarianism with General John Allen, a retired uh, Marine four-star uh, general who commanded our forces in Afghanistan who subsequently was the special envoy uh, to the coalition fighting ISIS, and who is now president of the Brookings Institution, one of the most distinguished uh, think tanks in the world. Uh, I want to ask uh, you here uh, in the room with me and people watching uh, who are the live stream of this, if they'd like to be in the conversation, ask questions, please send them to hashtag postlive. So, General Allen, I want to begin with uh, the question that is at the center of Bob Kagan's essay uh, about authoritarianism and ask you, uh, in what way do you see this movement as a threat to the United States and its interests? Why do you think it's on the rise? And what are the basics of what you, th you think we should do about it? Well, David, first, it's great to be with you, to see you again. Uh, it, I think it's terrific for The Washington Post to be sponsoring this forum on this topic, <clears throat> but I think on many other topics that will be very important uh, to the readership uh, and to our public. Uh, I think when we, as I grew up in the Cold War era, uh, we had a sense that there was a certain inevitability uh, to what might be considered uh, the uh, liberal democracy, the movement towards liberal democracy in the world, and much of the world in the aftermath of the Cold War would either be governed by democracies or would be trending in that direction. I think we, we felt that. Uh, the reality, of course, has become different. Uh, and Bob, in his excellent piece, has pointed a couple of things out. One is that there have been trends uh, of global economy, uh, in, in global economics. There have been unfulfilled uh, expectations among large segments of populations uh, that have, uh, in the aftermath of the, uh, the collapse of the Cold War and the emergence of what we thought was going to be this community of nations, largely governed by democracy, uh, that left a large segment of populations disenfranchised. Uh, and as a result of that, this has given rise, it has given the potential for uh, the emergence of authoritarianism, uh, for strong men to emerge uh, who seek to harvest the, the uh, populism uh, that is easily uh, stoked at this particular moment. 
Uh, so from my perspective, uh, authoritarianism, uh, autocratic governments, uh, are a genuine threat to the United States, but not just to the United States, but to the broader liberal democratic order. You know, we championed that order in many respects. We were the author of the many different facets of that order, whether it was the, the global economic relationship, whether it was our relationships uh, in terms of security alliances, uh, whether it was the United Nations and the idea that <clears throat> all of the community of nations had a stake in each other's futures and in uh, a stake in each other's security, the United States was really at the heart of all of that. We fostered a series of relationships which would ultimately uh, create this global order that was based on uh, the tenets and the principles of liberal democracy. So as that has begun to recede, as we have begun to see the emergence of a peer competitor in China, uh, a, a hostile competitor in my mind in Russia, uh, as we have seen the conditions in certain countries come together to create uh, a populist base that could be harvested by strong men, authoritarian figures, uh, this has begun, I think, to push back upon the liberal democratic order. And let's remember what the liberal democratic order is all about. It's, it's about states that are committed to the rule of law, states that are committed to human rights and equal rights for its citizens. It's, it's states who recognize that while there is this thing called sovereignty, the, the interaction of people is very important for the furtherance of the good of all humankind. Um, authoritarian states don't come down on that, those kinds of issues in the way that we would want our democracies to. Uh, the rule of law is in fact a threat to authoritarians. Uh, human rights, in fact, is uh, an obstacle, commitment to human rights, is an obstacle to their capacity to rule their societies. And we need to remember that in democracies, our societies are governed by the consent of the masses. In authoritarian states, they are ruled by the consent of the few at the top uh, who have seized the kinds of authority and power necessary to dominate the society. So wherever there is an advance of authoritarianism anywhere, there is a retreat of liberal democracy somewhere. And the United States needs to be absolutely committed, uh, ultimately, to preserving as much of the world order that we fostered as we can with our allies, because they were partners with us in this process. We have to be committed to this, because as these uh, authoritarians, as these autocrats come forward out of the shadows, which is what Bob's point is, they've always been around. It was when there were strong uh, multilateral organizations of democracies committed to the rule of law, committed to human rights, committed to free trade and the interaction of peoples and the guarantee of equal rights for all. When we were together as a community, then they had little space to maneuver. So let me ask you, General Allen, the, the <clears throat> skeptical question. Uh, we have a president in the White House uh, who, among the many things he says, says something that's, I think, widely felt by Americans, which is that we've been through a period of uh, an attempted overreach of American foreign policy. And some would argue that we've tended to over-moralize American foreign policy, uh, to, to put it in values terms rather than strict terms of, of national interest. So again, coming at it from this uh, devil's advocate, uh, skeptical point of view, 
Why does this threaten the national interests of the United States in a way that requires uh, such a strong response as you're describing? Well, if we truly believe in our own values, uh, as one of the things I did last night was to reread the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and if we truly do believe in our values, uh, which is that they are enshrined in a set of principles that values the rule of law above all other things and inherent to the rule of law is an absolute commitment to the human rights and the equal rights of the population. If those are truly our values as a people and as a nation and as a community of nations with whom we are allied very closely, then it is something that threatens not just the community of nations, just, not just our allies, but it threatens the very social fabric of the, of the United States and of America in particular. So when we see gains by authoritarians that tramples democratic process, that tramples democratic institutions, that walks on a free and independent press, that circumscribes freedom of speech, that would seek to, uh, to uh, identify and marginalize a segment of the society or a faith practiced within that society, that's a threat to us. This is what we stand for, and we should be standing up against that. So again, to ask what I hope is an impolitic question, how does the United States combat authoritarianism at a time when Many people at home and abroad believe the United States has a somewhat authoritarian president here in Washington, D.C. How does that work? Well, I think we need to be uh, clear about the difference between what appears to be U.S. leadership and American leadership. You're an American leader. These are American leaders before me. They're American leaders watching us uh, from the webcast. Institutions like think tanks, universities, uh, these are all uh, measures of American leadership, American commitment to democracy, American commitment to human rights and the rule of law. And, and when I see our friends overseas and they're scratching their heads about what they're hearing coming out of Washington or, or whatever the tweet is that particular morning, I, I ask them, please don't make a long-term structural decision with respect to your relationship with us, because there will come this day, there will come the day when you will not hear that again, and you'll see a synchronization of what we would call American leadership with U.S. leadership again, a, a leadership for whom human rights is perhaps the first measure of relations uh, with nations that we'll be involved with, not an afterthought or completely off the table, which is where we find ourselves frequently. Uh, as we deal with uh, strong men overseas. Uh, and so I think there is a very strong American predisposition, a very strong American bias to all of those things that we've talked about, which has, it's values-based. We live, I believe, we live our values. And, and outside the Beltway, I, you go to a state government or you go to a municipal government or you go to a county government, democracy is strong there. By and large, people are desperate for reassurance that their democracy means something, it stands for something, and their values mean something. Now, a large segment of the American population feels disenfranchised, and that has caused a dynamic, a populist dynamic that was harvested by certain people, and that populist dynamic uh, has delivered us into the political environment that we're in today. It's not the 
it's not the problem of this president. I mean, he has, in fact, found himself in a position where this long sweep of disenfranchisement of segments of our population has delivered the political environment, ultimately, that permits this kind of government to emerge. But I do believe that the American people are committed to these values, that our foreign policy should continue to be committed to these values, and we should, as, as people around the world believe, that they should be able to look at the United States and see that example of people who are the exemplars of the values that we have espoused for so many years. We live them, and we are an example of them, and we seek to extend them to those who are our friends and those who are not our friends, that they'll pay a price for their authoritarianism and their autocracy. So just one more question on this somewhat political uh, area, do you think this period of uh, nationalist populism in the United States, embodied by Donald Trump, with authoritarian characteristics, certainly in attacking <laughs> the media, do you, do you think this period will be short-lived? Well, it didn't start last Tuesday, and it's not going to end next Tuesday. So I, I think, again, this president is a symptom. He has harvested the outcome of, of something that is symptomatic of something deeper in our society. However, driving the wedge into the society which marginalizes segments of our society by race or by ethnicity or by gender or by faith, that has exacerbated the issue. Uh, and there will be a day after. This administration, there will be a day after. And for those who would uh, seek to lead our people, seek to help to govern this democracy, need to be thinking about what are the conditions in this country which in part and in, the, in aggregation created an environment where this kind of government could emerge. And if you don't like it, then we need to decompose why and begin systematically, as I know many uh, would like to, um, to begin to address those issues. Uh you were our commander in Afghanistan. I can remember uh, visiting you in, in, mm -hmm. in Kabul. Um, I think a lot of Americans ask themselves, as, as you must, how much longer do we do this? It's now 18 years that we've been involved in this war, and a lot of Americans think, what have we gotten out of this? Uh, we, we have uh, active negotiations now with Zalmay Khalilzad uh, speaking directly to the Taliban, and it's infuriated the president of Af Afghanistan, sure. Ashraf Ghani, who you know well. I do. Um, who feels that we're abandoning him. Are we abandoning him, and do you think the kind of deal that, uh, that Ambassador Khalilzad is, is pursuing uh, keeps faith with the men and women who lost their lives there under your command and that uh, command of your colleagues? David, not a day goes by that I don't think about those troops. Uh, those who lost their lives, the thousands who were physically wounded, the thousands who have suffered thereafter from PTSD, not a day goes by. So for me, keeping faith with their sacrifice is very important to me and the sacrifices of their families, Gold Star families, Blue Star families. Uh, and I can't tell you how long we need to be in Afghanistan. But the advances that have been made 
in Afghanistan, which is often uh, not depicted, it's often not pointed to. The advances that have been made uh, in the social environment, life expectancy, uh, child mortality, uh, access to health care, improvements in education, um, the earliest moments of democracy, uh, all of those things were utterly absent on the 10th of September in 2001. Uh, in the aftermath of the attack, the United States and the global community went to uh, Afghanistan to defeat the Taliban and to place, put in place a government which could be preserved over the long period of time, over the long term, that would prevent the reemergence of uh, a terrorist platform. Uh, the principal opponent still remains the Taliban. Uh, and one of our greatest diplomats of the modern era, Ryan Crocker, uh, and I had the opportunity a couple of times to talk to the Taliban, and that never really went anywhere at that particular moment. But the truth is, uh, all conflict ends with a peace agreement of some form or another. And my sense is, with uh, Zal Khalilzad, who is a great diplomat and, and well-known to the region, well-known to all the participants as well, that he has gotten this started. And I understand that President Ghani has uh, been very unhappy about this, as was expressed by his national security advisor here in town last week. Uh, but that process started without the Afghan government necessarily at the table will not be a process concluded without the Afghan government being a full and complete participant in that process. So I, I can understand why he's unhappy at this point, uh, but I fully expect that this administration, and certainly as, as represented by the special envoy, uh, Ambassador Khalilzad, uh, I fully expect that at a particular moment, the Afghan government will become full and complete participants because in, in the end, while the conversation has begun about the Taliban committing not to become, Afghanistan not becoming a terrorist platform and a conversation about the departure of foreign troops, in the end there are some other really essential things that the Taliban have to agree to. And we have to be skeptical of the Taliban's willingness to commit to this. One of the most important is that the Taliban will not roll back the rights that Afghan women have achieved, enormous rights that they have achieved uh, in this uh, period of time of this conflict. There's been in a great American emphasis. Our European allies have been in this. The EU has been in this as an entity in doing everything that we could to try to bolster civil society. And where governments sometimes will uh, flounder, well, governments will sometimes become uh, quite wobbly, a strong civil society can, in fact, be the safety net for that. And one commander after another, one ambassador after another, the EU, our European allies, our Asian partners, they've put a lot of effort into civil society. Civil society as an entity in a modern Afghanistan is a direct threat to the ideology of the Taliban. And we better be able to square that circle before we talk about a permanent uh, outcome where the United States withdraws with our partners and leaves exposed the Afghans. So I, I understand you to be saying that we should not leave until we have some confidence that these human rights that Af Afghan citizens have gained uh, 
rights for women, <coughs> rights for people are, are preserved. Let me ask the audience to remind you, if you want to join the conversation with General Allen, uh, we are hashtag post live, and I will be looking at my little screen here to see your questions. Okay. Um, General Allen, another of the things you did in your remarkable career was uh, play a role as an advisor to the six-party talks on uh, Korea, North Korean denuclearization specifically. Here we are uh, dealing with the same basket of issues. And, and sure. I want to ask you, um, after the breakdown of the Hanoi summit, uh, first, whether President Trump overreached in this very personal diplomacy. Uh, second, what's, what's next? What would you, as a, as a sensible, experienced <coughs> advisor, tell these folks they ought to be doing uh, next? And then I'll just tack on one more question. If, uh, if you were Prime Minister Abe in Japan, looking at this situation, <coughs> wouldn't you think Japan needs a nuclear deterrent of its own? Um, well, you know, let me applaud the president for uh, having the courage to speak directly to Kim Jong-un. Now, there, are, there will be those who say that he has legitimized this, total, this horrendous totalitarian regime. It is a horrendous totalitarian regime. But having been an observer to the six-party talks, where six countries uh, came together with an earnest desire to try to find our way out of this wilderness, this nuclear wilderness. Um, it, it did not pan out. The, this president was handed a very difficult security environment in Northeast Asia, and in particular, <clears throat> excuse me, as Kim Jong-un, I think, ultimately has demonstrated that he has actually achieved a strategic nuclear deterrent. In other words, an ICBM that can reach the United States, the continental United States, <clears throat> he appears to have not just been able to miniaturize his nuclear devices into a warhead, he's been able to mate it, which is the, the physics associated with that are quite daunting. And our intelligence community has said that he has multiple warheads. Um, so no other president prior to this one has been confronted with the reality that this regime could, in fact, if this is a suicidal regime, and it's never quite clear uh, what their final outcome might be in a real pinch, uh, this regime can reach the continental United States. So I, to an extent, I applaud the president in doing this. Uh, what I think has not been helpful has been this, 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 this rhetoric. First of all, the rhetoric uh, that, that really brought us, I think, to the, the brink of the potential for conflict in Northeast Asia. And then a rhetoric in the aftermath of the first um, summit, which produced a, a pretty hollow joint statement, none of which has come to pass, but rhetoric that in essence said, I, I have solved the nuclear deterrent. There is no North Korean nuclear threat anymore, any longer. Uh, and what that's done is, in fact, it depressurized those who were engaged in the maximum pressure strategy with regards to sanctions and North Korea, which had, I think, a substantial reason, a substantial, was a substantial factor in their coming to the table. So we depressurized that, and the Chinese, to some extent, walked back. Um, then, then the rhetoric for the Hanoi summit, where we have fallen in love uh, <laughs> with Kim Jong-un, I think inflated expectations in many respects uh, for an outcome 
uh, which was quite disappointing. And, you know, again, uh, if the president didn't get what he wanted, not permitting Kim Jong-un to dictate an outcome, I think was wise. But the question needs to be, needs to be what are we doing behind the scenes with our experts to set the conditions uh, for a summit where we have, as leaders arrive, real expectations for outcomes, showing up and having meetings with no real expectations for outcomes leaves you at a point where we can't even agree on what denuclearization means, and that's an issue. And what about my uh, uh, little uh, insinuation about, uh, about uh, the Japanese? I think it's really fascinating to think about their, their dilemma. Uh, yeah, well, North why, why shouldn't J Japan, facing this completely unpredictable, threatening, shooting rockets over Japan every sure. time it feels like it, why shouldn't Japan move in that direction? Well, we've worked uh, with both Korea and Japan to provide uh, enhancements to their missile defense capabilities. Um, we have worked very closely in, in terms of the networking for command and control for missile defense. Uh, and nothing has really changed, as I understand it with this administration, nothing has really changed uh, with respect to the extension of the U.S. strategic deterrence mm -hmm. uh, of, uh, the, for the region. In other words, the United States extended its nuclear umbrella over South Korea and over Japan. Uh, but uh, at some point, uh, it, is a, uh, it is a logical question to be asked uh, both in terms of uh, decision-making in the Blue House in Seoul and decision-making in Tokyo uh, as to whether the U.S. nuclear umbrella is credible, uh, whether it can be sustained, or whether it might be sacrificed uh, in some form or another for some kind of an agreement that will not, almost certainly not denuclearize the peninsula. It's, it's almost impossible to imagine that Kim Jong-un will give up all of his nuclear deterrence. So the Japanese may have to logically explore that. I, I would not encourage it, and I'm not sitting here and encouraging it, uh, but they may have to think in those terms. And my guess would be that they have, and they are technologically sufficiently advanced that this is something they could do. We have uh, about, uh, you know, 30 seconds left. I'm going to ask you a, a pointed question that comes from one of our followers. That'll be a difference. On Twitter. <laughs> Uh, and it's just straight and to the point. Sure. How can we address and stop the growing authoritarianism in the United States? Well, again, I was, uh, I'm always renewed, and for those of you who are watching, for those of you who are here, if you've not done it recently, you need to read the Constitution. You need to read the Declaration of Independence. And I think we're beginning to see, look, democracies don't happen fast. They don't move quickly. That's the difference between an authoritarian and an autocratic state or a totalitarian state. They can twist quickly, but they've got very little shock absorbency. Democracies have lots of shock absor absorbency, and there's no other democracy on the planet with more than we have, as it's enshrined in our Constitution. <clears throat> you know, Article I is, is all about uh, our legislature. And we're beginning to see now the legislature is beginning to twist a bit onto the subject of, in fact, addressing these uh, drifts, if you will, towards authoritarianism. And I think our founders were brilliant in enshrining and embedding these checks and balances and dynamics uh, in our Constitution. So our judiciary has remained largely intact. Uh, authoritarians start to take that apart pretty early. Our um, fourth estate 
has never been more important to America than it is right now, the free and independent media. The legislature is, is beginning to find some traction, and I think all of those interlocking dimensions of American democracy in our society, uh, I'm, I'm more optimistic than I great, was. Great answer. It is such a pleasure to have General Allen, the president of the Brookings Institution, here with us. Thank, Thank you, General Allen, and, and I want to now ask Fred Hyatt, uh, my boss, to come back on stage. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.